Well, you've caught on that our series about neighboring well, because there's been so many good examples of it throughout the church service. We're going to be focusing on neighboring well in the sermons for the next four weeks. So it is our theme, it our, our goal for the year, but we're going to start out that goal with some Bible study on it. We have some other plans throughout the year to neighbor well, but we're just going to try to root ourselves in some scripture to help inform our neighboring well. And I started preparing for this study months ago, and I love the beginning stages of preparing for a message, because uh, when you know you're going to preach a series, it's a blank slate. I know that I want to talk about neighboring well, and I have the scripture, and I know there's principles of wisdom in there, but I don't know how many sermons it's going to be, or what passages it's going to be, or what the main points are. So it's kind of an adventure, like an adventure in the Bible with the Holy Spirit. Where are you going to take us? And I remember at the very beginning of this adventure, I was just anxious to start, and I had to do all my other work, but I, I had to get started on this study. So I took my Bible concordance with me to bed. And I was, you know, it's like a 10-pound book. And I have a Bible concordance and a notepad of paper. And I started reading through every verse in the Bible that has the word neighbor. Any guesses what the first one is? It's in Exodus chapter 3. And it's when God tells Moses, the burning bush, that he's not going to leave Egypt empty-handed, but they're actually going to go to their neighbors and ask for valuables and plunder the Egyptians. I thought, that's not a great principle for neighboring well. We don't need to plunder our neighbors. But as I've thought about it, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. Like, it's the biblical foundation for ingathering. If you don't know what ingathering is, that's a joke. Ingathering is when the church goes out to their neighbors and says, hey, we're raising money for the church. We're collecting money, right? And in all seriousness, both the plundering of the Egyptians and ingathering is an example of how God uses our neighbors to bless us. God actually puts people in our life with means and abilities to pour into us when we're in need. So I, I came to that first one and thought, you know, I'm not going to preach on that one. But I kept reading. And if you keep reading through Scripture on the verses that talk about neighbors, you find more than you can talk about principles for how to love others around us. And we're going to be in those for the next four weeks. And we're actually going to center on the story of the Good Samaritan all four weeks. The story of the Good Samaritan is deep enough to talk about for four weeks, and it kind of gathers a lot of those lessons you find scattered all throughout, uh, all throughout Scripture about being a good neighbor, and it puts it into a parable for us to understand. So four weeks in the Good Samaritan story, and, and I just, I hope God moves in our hearts. You know, our stated goal, this is voted by the church and business session for this year, is we said, we said it this way, in 2022, we will make giant strides forwards in our relationship with our community. That sounds pretty ambitious. And it's really something we can't do just by voting it. We have to have the Spirit in us, moving us to love our neighbor. And uh, the Bible calls us to an incredible standard. So let's pray as we begin the study in this series. Father, I pray you'd touch our hearts right now. Recognize that so many uh, are watching online and not able to be here right now. I pray you'd be in their homes or wherever they're joining us from. 
Your word is living and active in these words of Jesus. Speak to us today. And I pray you breathe life into them. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of the Good Samaritan is in Luke chapter 10. So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. I have most of the verses on the screen if you just want to follow along that way. And here's where we're starting. We're starting with the relationship between justification and justice. Those words are important enough that I want to get those words. If we don't get those two words, the message doesn't make much sense. So justification is that vertical relationship. It is being made just in the eyes of God. Being made right in the eyes of God. It is being saved. That's justification. And justice is behaving right to other people. So it is having right behavior to others, treating other people right. So justification is being right in the eyes of God. Justice is behaving right toward others. And here's what I'm trying to make the case for today. That there is a pivotal relationship between our view of justification and our practice of justice. So our practice of justice can be shaped very strongly by the way we understand justification. Yep, the way I think and believe about how I'm saved actually impacts my ability to neighbor well. That's what we see in the Good Samaritan story. And that there's an enormous value in exploring this relationship. That's what we're going to do for this sermon. And the value is that this relationship reveals what I believe is the greatest determining factor for neighboring well. So that's quite a claim. But I think the greatest single thing that helps us neighbor well is seen in this relationship between our view of justification and our practice of justice. So if that sounds way too academic, try to remember these lines. Our view of how God saves us and our practice of how we treat others are related. And we got to get this. In the story of the Good Samaritan, actually requires that we consider this relationship. So in Luke 10, we have to consider the relationship between justification and justice because the parable ends with justice. So here's a justice question that comes at the very end of the parable. Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. That's a justice question. That is a question of how, how we treat others, the horizontal relationship. But that's not what the parable is really mainly about because the parable begins with a question about justification. So it ends with a question of justice, but here's how the parable begins. A teacher comes to Jesus to test him and asks this justification question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the whole parable is motivated by a question of how we are saved. And here's where I hope I don't ruin the Good Samaritan parable for us. But it's a lot bigger than we've often thought. It's not just a story of random acts of kindness to a stranger. In fact, it is not primarily about a social gospel. It's about a saving gospel. It's not mainly about justice. It's about justification. He's trying to answer this man's question about how we're saved. So there is neighboring well that comes out of it, but the neighboring well is the fruit of a life 
that's rooted in the gospel. So we're going to see our actions towards others in light of that first question. How are we saved? What must I, whoa, did I get really loud to you? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's how it's going to look, the structure that we're going to follow as we go through the parable. We're going to look at two different views of justification. So self-justification, this is what must I do to inherit eternal life. So that's very clear in the story. And Christ's justification, what has Christ done to give me eternal life? Those are two very different views. Sometimes we call them grace and works, but they're two different views of how we're saved. And then we're going to see how those views produce different types of justice. So we're going to look at what kind of justice flows from self-justification, what kind of justice flows from Christ's justification, and it is a huge impact on the way we neighbor well. So here's the first kind of justification. The, the lawyer has a wrong view of how we're saved. He doesn't quite get it. And in Luke 10, there's a theme of not getting it. Okay, so this comes in Luke 10, and Jesus had been talking about people not getting important things. Just before the lawyer asks his question, Jesus turned to his disciples and said this, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And, and then the next thing that happens is the lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks the question. So there's something very important that super smart people weren't understanding. Jesus is highlighting that there were two incompatible mindsets that he was sensing all around him as he did ministry. And he says, hey, you're getting it. Your eyes are blessed because you're seeing this thing you need to see. Right before this, Jesus actually thanked the Father in verse 21. He says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. There were two different mindsets. And we get a clue at what those two different mindsets are when we back up just a verse further. So this is all in Luke 10. You back up a, a bit further to verse 20. And Jesus had sent out missionaries. He sent out 72 missionaries to do work. And when you do work for the Lord, it's exciting stuff because his spirit accompanies you and good things happen and you, just, you get excited about it. So they come back from their mission trip really excited. And Jesus senses a little thing that he's, he's nervous about in their words. So he cautions them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see the two different mindsets there? So, so Jesus is just saying, hey, I know you're excited. I just want to make sure you're not excited about the good things you accomplished. I want to make sure that you're not excited about what you can do for me, but what I have done for you. So he says, here's Tudor Mind says, one gets really excited that they actually can control powers, like, like the demons are subject to them. Look what I did. The other says, yeah, I did that, but you know what I'm really excited about? My name is written in heaven. Like, after all that stuff, what I'm excited about is I'm going to be with Jesus forever. He has saved me, and I'm going home. 
So the two different mindsets would be from what I can do to what Christ has done. And then we come just right after that in Luke 10, we come to this man's question, and he has the first mindset. It is about what I can do. So his question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He had a view. His question reveals a theology of self-justification, and it's so dangerous. It's a dangerous theology. What can I do to inherit eternal life? So at this point in the story, I'm rooting for Jesus to set him straight. Like, as I'm reading the story, I'm thinking, Jesus, correct this man. First of all, he came to test you, and so he has this cocky attitude, and he needs to be set straight. But then he asks a theologically destructive question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So I'm wanting Jesus to say, hey, let me tell you about who I am and about grace and maybe rebuke his self-righteousness a little bit. But Jesus doesn't do that. We learn so much from how Jesus responds to people in the Gospels. Jesus could have won the argument and lost the opportunity. And we can do that, can't we, in witnessing? The Bible says, speak the truth in love. So not only did Jesus want to get the truth across to this guy, he wanted to get it across in such a loving way, considering who he was in a way that he would receive it. So this, Jesus doesn't say, you're wrong. Jesus decides to share the truth in a different way. And here's what I find. Um, the books, the writings of Ellen White are so helpful in my study to understand what Scripture is saying. And uh, sometimes I, I read them near the beginning of my study, and sometimes I read them near the end, or sometimes I don't read them. But this time, I picked up Desire of Ages and read the chapter on the Good Samaritan towards the end of my study. And what I find, find consistently is whenever I have really good points, she already had them. Like, I studied all this time to come up with a good point, and I read it, and she saw it right there. So she says right before this, this is about the Good Samaritan, she says, Jesus refused to be drawn into controversy. This is on page 498. And then it says, she's talking about how he's responding. Like, he could have said him straight. He could have argued, but this is what he knew. It says, it is the revelation of God's love that makes manifest the deformity and sin of the heart centered in self. So here's a man, the lawyer, whose heart is centered in self. And what Jesus knew is this man needs to see a revelation of the love of God. So Jesus tactfully is thinking up a parable to try to reveal the love of God to help him see a different view of justification. And as we get through this parable, we'll see that Jesus, he engineers this whole parable to show a different view of justification, one of grace and not of self. So Jesus is revealing love, and instead of arguing, he does what we're trying to do on this, this wall out here, tell me more. He basically says, tell me more. He asks the question, what's written in the law? And then he asks the follow-up question, how do you read it? And that's not the response the lawyer was going for. Remember, the lawyer was trapping the, Jesus, so he expected a controversial answer that he could say, here, look at this man. He's speaking blasphemy. But Jesus actually upholds a respected lawyer, religious lawyer, and says, hey, I want to hear what you have to say. What does the law say? Because Jesus is pro-law. He's not against the law. 
He wrote the law. He wants us to live by the law, right? He's not there to attack it. He's saying, tell me what the law says. Because that law is a good thing to follow. In fact, obedience to the law, I'll say it twice, but obedience to the law is a way of life in Christ, but not the way to life in Christ. Did you catch it? Obedience to the law is a beautiful way of life in Christ. That's what he calls us to. It's not the way to life in Christ. Only Christ is the way to life. So he brings us into that and he says, now live in line with my will. So he's not against the law, but he needs this lawyer to process the limit of the law in justifying self. So he asks the question and the lawyer answers perfectly. I'm going to read it because this is the highest standard of living right here. This is what I want to live for. This is beautiful. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. If I can do that, I lived a successful life. If I can love God with everything I am, and my neighbor as myself, but I don't know if you noticed, that's a pretty lofty standard. That's pretty high. So the lawyer says this, and Jesus says, you're correct. Now, Jesus says he's correct when the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So process this. There actually is a correct answer to that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're going to exclude grace from the picture, there is one thing you could do, but it's only theoretical because it's not possible. What you'd have to do is perfectly keep the law to the highest standard every single second of your life, right? If you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't need redeemed. So if you never, ever broke that, if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind perfectly from the moment you took your first breath to the end and loved your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't need a Savior. But Christ knows that all have sinned and fallen short, and he's wanting the lawyer to get this too. So he says, you're correct. Like, that is a, a correct answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. And then he says, do this and live. Now, when he says you're correct, that might have felt pretty good to the man. He was affirmed. But when he says the words, do this and live, that should have cut with conviction. It should have, when he, when he you know, the lawyer set out to trap Jesus with his question, but Jesus has now trapped the man in his own answer because he highlighted this impossibly awesome standard. And he says, yeah, just go do that. And as soon as he says those words, the lawyer should have thought, I can't do that. I can't do what I just said. I need some help. And then Jesus could have said something like, you've answered correctly. <laughs> Let me tell you about myself. And then the parable would have been a much different story. So it's like I was thinking of a comparison. So imagine your child asks you the question, hey, uh, what would I have to do to walk to the moon? And the answer would be, well, you can't. But you want to be, be like Jesus and you're wanting to let him come to that conclusion. So you say to your child, well, what does science say? What, how do you read it? And the child and, and their understanding says, well, you know, first I have to make a really, really big staircase. And, but that would probably take all the trees in the world. And it'd probably take me 50,000 years. 
And then I'd have to figure out how to survive out there beyond the atmosphere. And your child would go on like this. And then you say, you're correct. Now just do that and you can walk to the moon. And your child could say, I can't do that. But this man doesn't say that. He's still trying to find a way that he can do that. So Jesus tells a parable. And he highlights the highest standard of love in the, the figure of a good Samaritan. He tells that and he says, now, now who, showed, who loved their neighbor? And he says, that man who showed mercy. And then he says another convicting statement, kind of like do this and live. He says, you go and do likewise. And once again, the man should have said, well, I can't go and do likewise. I can't do that. And Christ could have said, I can help you with that. We don't know how the man processed this. I hope the man, the lawyer, went home and thought about this and, and decided he needed grace. And he came to Jesus, and I hope we see him in heaven. But we don't know the rest of the story. We just know at the point he left off, he was struggling in this one view of justification that's about self. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's another kind of justification. Praise God, there's another kind of justification. We get really excited about it here because it is salvation by grace through faith. That I am saved, I am justified by the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth in Scripture. And Jesus portrayed it right here in this story. I love how every word Jesus says counts. This story is so full. And right here in this story, Jesus gives us a picture of salvation by grace through faith. And the question would be, which character do you identify with? There's a bunch of characters in the story. There's an innkeeper, and there's robbers, and don't identify with them. And there's Levites and priests, and there's a Samaritan. And this lawyer, even though he didn't like the, the uh, ethnicity of the Samaritan, as he listened, he wished to identify with the perfection of the good Samaritan. But as Jesus told the story, I believe he wished the lawyer would identify with the helplessness of the dying man. Before we will be the person who's available to help, we've got to realize we need help. We need off the road. We have to see ourselves as the one who's helplessly laying beside the road, and we're never going to get up to help anybody unless someone comes to rescue us. So Jesus tells this story, and he tells it in such a way that every one of us can identify with this dying man. The Samaritan gets an ethnicity, but the man on the side of the road doesn't get any. So we can see him looking like us. Whatever you look like, you can imagine that man looking like you. He doesn't have a name, so we can give him ours. He doesn't have a title. He's not a Levite. He's not an innkeeper. So you can imagine this, this man on the side of the road as you. And the only thing we know about this man, the only description we get, is actually the biggest problem that every one of us have. Here's what we know about the man. He was robbed and beaten, and left for dead. And here's what we know about us. We have an enemy who steals, and kills, and destroys, and wants us dead. So Jesus comes along as a good Samaritan, and finds every one of us lying beside the road. We're not going to make it unless someone comes. And there's one who comes, and who leads us to restoration. Now, once again, I want to turn to a passage in desire of ages. It's not all on the screen, but it starts it there. Just listen to the gospel in these words. I'm going to read a whole paragraph. 
In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus gave us a picture of himself and his mission. Man had been deceived, bruised, robbed, and ruined by Satan, and left to perish, but the Savior had compassion on their helpless condition. He left his glory to come to our rescue. He found us ready to die, and he undertook our case. He healed our wounds. He covered us with his robe of righteousness. He opened to us a refuge of safety, and he made complete provision for us at his own charges. He died to redeem us. Pointing to his own example, he says to his followers, These things I command you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What a picture of a different type of justification. Here is justification that Christ offers. Salvation by grace through faith. Which man in the parable do you see yourself as? Now, I think Christ wanted us to see ourselves in the position of the Good Samaritan. But it's only after we've been helped by Christ that we're in a position to help anybody else. So we have to first see ourselves as the dying man. And that is, well, it's just not comfortable. <laughs> it's not comfortable for me to admit where I really am. But I'll tell you what, if I admit where I really am, if I see myself there, the gratitude that's going to be in my heart is going to translate very well into neighboring well. Because gratitude increases generosity, right? The more I recognize that Christ has given me grace, the more I'm going to give grace to others. And if I live my life, I've been trying to do this this week as I've been working on this sermon, man, just if I live my life recognizing what Christ has done for me, I'm going to be the best neighbor there is. It's just I get distracted with all these other things and I forget he has redeemed my life from, from the side of the road and promised me something extraordinary. That's going to be a really good neighbor to have who lives with that type of gratitude. So here are these two types, views of justification. We've seen them in the story. We see one in the mind of the lawyer. We see one in the intentions of Christ. Now we'll just ask the questions, what kind of justice flows out of each of these? So the justice that flows from self-justification, this is the most convicting verse for me. I skipped it as we read the first time, but I'm going to go back to the lawyer's second question. We're going to ask the question, what kind of justice flows out of self-justification? And verse 29 is a convicting verse. As soon as he feels like he can't measure up, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's the function of that question? It is to limit the scope of neighboring, right? Like if I can just define who they are and limit it from this to this, maybe I can succeed. It's like the boy wanting to go to the moon and hearing you say, you do this and, and you'll make it to the moon. And he says, does a rocket ship count as walking? Like, could I get there another way? Could I limit what I have to do and still be successful? So this, this man, here's what he does. Justifying self required him to limit his scope of justice to others. Self-justification 
diminishes justice to others. It has to, because we're focused on how we can approve ourselves and all that energy. Man, it takes a lot of energy to justify yourself. It takes a lot of energy to go around and always convince yourself and anyone around you that you're actually okay. And all that energy goes here rather than here. And when I justify self, I end up coming up with a whole lot of justifications for neighboring well without actually loving anybody. I, I did the right thing, didn't I? Like, that was my neighbor right there. I limited that scope. So I, I did the right thing there. And I didn't really love him, but that passes, doesn't it? So we start doing things like, yeah, I'm justified in not giving to that person because they're just, they're just going to use it on drugs. Hey, I'm justified in speaking this way to my children because, well, they're out of control. Right? As soon as we start justifying, we start limiting what it means to neighbor well. We start thinking of excuses and reasons why maybe I deserve this, and maybe they don't deserve this, and maybe, you know, maybe I need this thing to promote self. But when we're freed from that, there's no need to limit that. There's no need to say who is my neighbor because you don't have to have self-justification perfectly checking off every box. So you're freed. So here's the difference. A few, a few words on selfishness first. This is all from that same chapter in Great Controversy. It, it says of this man, the lawyer was trained in the school of national bigotry. It says they had become selfish, narrow, and exclusive. I love those words. So when we become selfish, we have to become narrow in our justice. It just, our life is about us, not about them. It narrows the field of how we love people. And this is the next one here. Selfishness and cold formality have well nigh extinguished the fire of love. That's what it does. Self-focus extinguishes love and dispelled the grace that should make fragrant the character. So here's the two types of justice. The justice that flows from self-justification is a limited justice. There's some good we can do. You know, I believe you can do a lot of good things without being a born-again Christian. You could start a great nonprofit. You could do good things. You could bake a pie for your neighbor, these things. But the level of neighboring well that Jesus calls us to, like love your neighbors yourself, is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So there's a whole, a whole other arena of neighboring well that you just can't get to without Christ in the heart. So self-justification produces very limited justice. Self-justification diminishes our justice to others. But Christ's justification produces overflowing justice. Christ's justification motivates our justice to others. There's two great motivators. One great motivator would be morality. The other would be grace. So morality motivates me because I should do this because it's the right thing to do. And that motivates. But the motivation of grace is I can't stop doing this because I'm so grateful for what's been done for me. I'm overflowing with this because it's the natural response of a heart who's been touched by the grace of God. So here's what I find. This is in the concluding chapter of that, concluding paragraph of that chapter. The love of God in the heart is the only spring of love toward our neighbor. So here are the, the two statements I began the message with. 
there is a pivotal relationship between our view of justification and our practice of justice. And that might have been confusing the first time I read it. I hope it's a little more clear now. There's a big, big uh, correlation between these two things. And then I said something like this, there's an enormous value in exploring this relationship because it reveals the greatest determining factor of neighboring will. So here's what I believe that greatest determining factor is. The thing that's going to influence my neighboring will more than anything else is experiencing the grace of God for myself. Because self-righteousness kills neighboring will. It kills justice. I can't love my neighbor when I'm obsessed with self, but if I've experienced the grace of God, that is going to put a spring of love in my life to neighbor well. You know, you know what story of Scripture comes right after the Good Samaritan? I think it's an interesting connection. It's the story of Mary and Martha. We've got the Good Samaritan, and then to end the chapter, we got Mary and Martha. And Martha, it says, was distracted by much serving. So she was actually neighboring really well. She was so showing hospitality. She was looking to the needs of others. And I think Jesus meant to commend that. She was doing good things. But it actually says she was distracted. What was she distracted from? Yeah. So, so I can actually do the actions of neighboring well and be distracted from the source of it. Because right before it says she was distracted, it says her sister was sitting at Jesus' feet. And then when Jesus speaks to her, he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is important. And then he says, your sister Mary, she chose that one thing being with me. So what does that tell us? As we relate back to this story of the Good Samaritan, now that we see it as a story about justification, and we see it, this relationship between the vertical and the horizontal, and we, we, we say that the greatest determining factor of my justice to others is actually being rooted in the grace of God, now Jesus says, hey, there's only one thing that's important. I want you to serve. I want you to neighbor well, but you have to root it in one thing. You see these stories as connected? He's telling her, your service is good, but it's always going to be limited unless you are living in connection with the grace of God. So what I, I call us to do, we're going to talk about neighboring well. We're going to talk about specifics in our community. We're going to look for four weeks on this topic. But my conviction is that all of it will be limited unless it's rooted in the gospel. So I invite you, to dwell on what Christ has done for you. I woke up in the middle of the night last night for two hours wide awake, and I decided to do just that. I thought about how, God, how good God has been in my life, and it was two hours of worship, thinking about all the places I've, I've been and people I've met and the things that God has blessed in. I just invite you to do that. Think about how good God has been to you, how he's called you out of bad things into good things, how he's led your life, and dwell on that until it overflows. And you cannot hold back the desire to extend to others the love that you've experienced in Christ.
Let's root our neighboring well in the experience of the gospel.